0: thing then downstairs. I may have left it right there. All right, well, let's start with the Bible. How about we do that? So one of the things that's very interesting in 1 John, well, we've been doing a series on 1 John, if you haven't been with us, um, and so if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John uh, chapter 2. It says this, and Mark, Mike preached on this last week, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. A fascinating passage, I think. Uh, when I was looking at this and praying on it this week, how to preach it, how to think it, and, and I've been talking to the congregation over the last uh, the last month, since Easter, uh, when I came to think about 1 John, uh, the longer I've been a pastor, the more I've been thinking about this um, passage, the more I've been wrestling with this passage. It's been very interesting to me um, to ponder it, to think about it, uh, this book is a fascinating book. Still haven't found it? It's not down in the room, it's not down in the bathroom, and it's not in the... I practiced my sermon this morning. (laughs) So... (laughs) Oh, it's around here. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, And so when I was thinking about it, um, it, was, it was interesting to me when I was looking at this particular one for a lot of reasons. It was interesting because of the definition of love that we looked at um, and, and commandments. It was interesting to me uh, when I looked at this particular instance because of all the ways that we particularly think about love and all the ways that we particularly define love. And so when you look at the Gospel of John, we read this, John fifteen nine through 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you think about our society, the definition of love can be quite perplexing. And that's because there are so many definitions. So I looked up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary the definition of love. How many definitions do you think there are in Merriam-Webster's dictionary? 16. There's 16 definitions for love. Now, what we call that those 16 definitions, we call that the semantic domain. That is the range of meaning. So, my father and I would always kind of get in debates when I'd come back from seminary, when I'd come back from college, and we would talk about things, and we would have these, we would have, um, uh, we would, we would have these debates, and I would say, "Look, I mean X, and he means Y, and we would use the same word." And my dad would say, well, that's pretty obvious that this word means this. And I would say, no, it means that. And I would try to explain to him, especially coming from seminary, that a word could have more than one meaning. And he would understand that, but he would always be insistent that the way he meant the word was the only way the word could be meant, right? And I would point to him in the dictionary that there were seven definitions, but his definition was the only one, right? He was, he's kind of stubborn that way. Uh, But there are lots of different definitions. And when we talk about love in our language, 16 definitions makes love a very confusing word. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, think about this. If we're talking about love, we could be talking about a score in tennis. How many of you are tennis players? 15 love means 15 to zero. You could be talking about how you love chocolate, which is very different than how you love your pet dog. And both of those loves are very different than how you love your best friend, which is entirely different from how one, how one loves the game of chess or playing a guitar like Nathan did. All of that is very different from how one loves your child. That's different from how one loves your mother or your country or your wife or how one loves God. It's very different from the love expressed in a sexual act. Love, it seems, is a many-faceted word in the English language, but it's not so in Greek. In Greek, there are four ways to state love. There's agape, everyone knows that one if you've been in the church for more than 10 minutes. Agape means unconditional love, it's the love of God for us and the love that we Christians are supposed to have for one another. There's another love that we're supposed to have, and that's philia, which means brotherly or friendship love, however... Philia is often used by John to also mean agape. It's used interchangeably in some areas. But Philia is pretty much brotherly love, except in Philadelphia, right? Uh, They don't understand that, apparently. Uh, Eagles, I've seen that. Sorry, Victoria. (laughs) Eros, erotic or sexual love, right? But it also means passionate love or the love of an embrace or a kiss, and then storge, parent to child or familial love, but it's also the love that a ruler has for his subjects or the subjects have for their ruler. It can also be the love that an animal has for its offspring, storge. And so Greeks don't say, I love chocolate. They have other words for that. They would use like because we really mean I like chocolate, okay? And that's what they mean. So they have four words for that. But in our language, we don't. So what's even more confusing is that in each society, even with the various definitions of the word love, how we express love, and if you think about this, how you express love in your culture is different as well. And a dictionary can't really cover that. A dictionary just gives you a definition. This is why we have poetry, right? Or literature. Because literature and poetry define love in a very different way, right? A dictionary can never really cover that. A textbook can never really cover it like poetry can. And so how we express or discuss or show love in our culture is very different. So in our current culture, the ethic of love is expressed in a way that Webster's won't cover. And so to be a loving person in our society can be all these other different things, but also... It can mean being a tolerant person. That's currently the way that much of our society talks about love. So that means to be tolerant of all kinds of behaviors, for instance, that God might list as being sinful. So that one, if one is tolerant of X sinful behavior or Y sinful behavior, then one is loving. And if you see that behavior as sinful or wrong, then you are not loving, right? We've all seen that in our culture. Even more confusing is our new religious view called critical theory. So if you're not familiar with critical theory, you will be. I mean, it's kind of everywhere. So critical theory, there's all kinds of critical theories. And if you're not familiar with why I call this a religious theory, it kind of takes on this zealousness that everybody must be following. So it's in our colleges, it's in our high schools, it's in our elementary schools, it's in our government. Uh, it's, it's kind of the the teaching, it's been, in, it's been put into our into our laws right now. It's everywhere. And so there's critical race theory. There's critical feminist theory. There's critical sex theory. There's critical gender theory. And what they're putting forward as bad, uh, sorry, um, they're putting forward as bad and accepting of those behaviors which they decide are good. So they're saying that they're, um, excuse me, let me rephrase this. So they put for it as bad and accepting of those behaviors which they decide are good. So they list, what they list, by the way, changes almost monthly if you haven't been paying attention. And so it's all very confusing. And so we get to a passage like ours today where John lists love with the following. He says, if you love, you will follow my commandments. And we have all of this other stuff in the background, plus we have our Christian understanding of love. Now this gets really confusing. And what do I mean by that? Well, we also have to dig into our Christian understanding of love. So is love a feeling? How many of you think love is a feeling? Like, that's often pushed. We have a song, Love, I'm Hooked on a Feeling, by B.J. Thomas that talks about love that way. Uh, We think that love is a feeling. Oftentimes, do I feel like I'm in love? But biblical love is clearly more than a feeling. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What does it not say there? It obeys commandments. And so if we have that ethic of love, what do we think there? Love, then, is a commitment. You'll hear me say that a lot. You'll hear me say that if you're getting married here. Love is a commitment. We get the picture of a strong commitment. And in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. So we get the picture of the self-sacrificing nature of love and an even deeper level of commitment. So it's a very different picture of love than the world offers up. Of. It's not tolerance, right? It's not a definition brought to us by critical theory. It's not a definition that many people bring us. The world's version of love is often self-gratifying and wildly selfish. It's affirming of both good and evil in the world's definition of love. It will affirm evil is good and good is evil, and it'll even celebrate that fact. In short, the world's version of love will always be manipulated to, by sin to one degree or another. Why? Because we're all sinners. We all have sin within us. And so anything we do is going to be tainted by sin to one degree or another. We can expect that. And so people without God who don't follow God will be even more manipulated by sin. We can understand that. And so their definition of love, of course, will be tainted by that. Now, in some places and times, it's going to be less sinful than others. And we have to understand that. There are good people out there, right? We understand that. We're all created in the image of God, and so we must understand that some people are going to be less sinful on the outside or, than others. Just like some people are going to give themselves completely over to sin, and they're going to be more wicked. Some cultures are going to give themselves more over to sin, and they're going to be more wicked than other cultures, right? We've seen that around the world. Some people are going to sin more externally Uh, and we're going to see that. Some people are going to look good on the outside, and their sins are going to be more internal. But here in 1 John 2, John remembers Jesus' teachings in which he recorded in his gospel love, and he gives us a very different picture of love. And that's what he's building on. He's building on the Johannine. He's building on Jesus' teaching of love that he recorded in John. And that's what he's talking about right here. The love and knowledge of Jesus is wrapped up with obedience of his commandments. That's what he's speaking about. So obedience to God, and that's what he's saying here, is both a sign of the true knowledge of God and the true love of God. How does that work? The love which Jesus speaks of in our gospel passage, and that's what he says, the love in this passage is agape. That's the word he uses. So let me me reread this to you again. John 15, 9 through 10. As the Father has agaped me, so I have agaped you. Abide in my agape. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my agape, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His agape. kind of changes that passage, doesn't it? That's His unconditional love. Abiding and dwelling So abiding means to dwell. He's dwelling in the agape there. So this is a new component of love with which you may be familiar. In God's economy, love is more than a feeling. It's a commitment unto death. And and love means to obey God. It's both. Now This doesn't mean that love is only obedience. What it means is that if you love God, you will obey him, and if you don't obey him, you don't love him. And understand what we're speaking about here. John isn't saying that if you disobey God here and there, you're not a Christian. He's not saying that. We all are going to disobey. We're all going to sin. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you practice a life of disobedience, if you live a a life of active disobedience to God, you don't know him. He's giving us a test. That's what he's telling us. If you live, excuse me, in active rebellion, you don't know him. You are not a believer. And he's giving us a test for that. It's an important test. He's telling other people, how do we know if someone's a believer? So if I'm living in open and active sin, or I'm living in an active sin, I know these particular sin areas are against God, but I'm not going to do it. So, for instance, bitterness is a, is a big one. I'm going to live in unrepentant bitterness. I hate whoever. Barry has wronged me, and I can't forgive him, and I am going to hate him, and I've decided I'm going to hate him for whatever That's an act of sin. I'm commanded to repent. I'm commanded to forgive or the Lord will not forgive me. But if I'm going to keep on dwelling in that, that's a good sign that I'm not a believer, that I don't have Christ in my heart. If I'm going to live um, as an active drug addict, I might struggle with it. That's one thing. But if I'm going to commit to it, that's another thing. You see what he's saying? One is committing. If I'm going to commit to materialism, right, I'm going to commit to living for money, that's one thing. If I'm going to struggle with it, that's another thing, okay? And that's what he's talking about here. And by no... He means truly believe or follow God as in a loving husband or wife truly knows their spouse or a loving parent truly knows their child. There's a deep knowledge there, a true understanding of the other. This is the knowledge of which John is speaking. So John here is offering a helpful sign to us. How do you know if another person is a believer or not? Now, this is really critical in a society that undergoes persecution, and that's what John's writing to, right? So if you're undergoing persecution, you need to know this, right? So if you were in communist China or if you're in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan where the government actively persecutes you if you're a Christian, you need to know if the person next to you or the person promising you that they're a Christian is actually a Christian. Why? Because if they're a government agent faking that they're a Christian and you trust them and tell them you're a Christian, then they can turn you into the government and you can go to jail. You can get executed. Something bad can happen to you. And that happens in China right now. Christians are in jail. In Saudi Arabia right now, Christians go to jail. In Iran, Christians go to jail. It happens around the world now. Well, it definitely happened in John's day. So how do you know? In our culture, we want to know in our churches if a person's a Christian or they're just coming to church and they don't know that they're not a Christian or they're pretending they're a Christian because we don't want to put them in leadership, right? We we have these tests. So when we're testing for you to be a pastor or we're testing for you to be in leadership – we ask these things. We check these things. We follow through with these things. We want to know if you're a believer. Now, there's a, there's a level where we can't always know, like I can't truly know, but there are these outward signs that John is giving us, and that's what he's saying. Look, I want to look for these signs in you to know if you're a believer or not. I can't for sure know, but I can certainly look at these signs and tell if you're actively walking, and that's what John is saying here how do you know? But these are also signs for us to look in our lives. Am I living for Jesus or not? And you can ask yourself these questions. Are you following his commandments? Are you living for his commandments? Not as in a checklist, and this is kind of confusing to people because I've told you and and we've told you before that following Christianity is not a checklist, right? But we do need ways to tell. And one big way is this. 1 John 2, 4-6 Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so what we're looking is for evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Are you growing in the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is the Holy Spirit, if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, He should be changing you from the inside. Are you changing from the inside out or not? Are you following His commandments? Are you reading His scriptures? You've heard that Christianity is not about checklists. It isn't. And you've read Paul write that we are saved by faith and not works. That's true. It won't sound odd to you, though, if you've read James who says faith without works is dead. And that's exactly what John and Jesus are saying here. If you love God, you will seek to follow him and do his will. So you are saved by faith. You are saved by grace through faith, but if you love God, you will seek to do His will, right? That's the progress, that's the process of becoming more like Jesus, more like God. Following God means repenting of sin, which means turning from sin and seeking to live as God made us to live, to live true lives of holiness. In short, we turn from the ways of the world and start to become more God-like. It's a journey, a lifestyle. It's not a one-time statement. You don't just walk the aisle and say you're going to be Him or become like Him and then walk out and then never change. It's a radical change. That's what repentance means. It turns and you become like him. It's living the lifestyle of Christianity. And this is what John means by abiding or dwelling. We walk in the same way that he walked. And this is a change that's pretty dramatic. Now, here are the questions for you this morning. Is this a change which you have made? John tells us that the signs are pretty easy to notice. I'm going to give you some basic signs, not some advanced signs. So these are just some fundamental basic signs, okay? Not the, uh, these are 101 signs, not the 201 signs. And you should be able to look at your life and another person's life and tell. What are you living for? What's the main thing in your life? that you are living for. Look at your checkbook. Ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Is your faith walk a joy or a chore? Do you have a faith walk at all? Do you enjoy studying your Bible regularly, sometimes, or can you not even remember the last time you picked it up? Do you regularly come to church and enjoy your time with fellow believers in God? And if you're not doing the Bible reading or coming to church, do you even know, and how do you know, what God teaches? These are the ways we learn about God's commandments. How can you even follow God's commandments if you're not doing those things? Do you share your faith with non-believers? How can you be excited about Jesus and not share your faith with non-believers? Apart from your job, do you work with the poor, the sick, the helpless, the widows, or the orphans? Do you crave communion when you've missed it for a while, or does it make no difference to you at all? During COVID, have you missed your fellowship with other believers in your time in church, or did it not make any difference to you at all? If you've been a Christian for a long period of time, have you grown to the level where you're discipling other believers and helping in various ministries? We should be growing to that level. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and you're not growing to that level, that's a sign that something's going wrong. Are you growing in your spiritual disciplines? Or do you not have any idea what I'm talking about when I say spiritual disciplines? Are you growing in the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That should be an ongoing process from where you started. That should be a continual, ongoing process. Is your family growing in these areas? All these are signs of obedience and growth of a believer, and if you're answering yes to them, you're in good shape. But if you are around a person who isn't really practicing these things and showing growth in these areas, the chances are pretty high they're not a believer. They're simply a cultural Christian or a pretender. And by the way, If you aren't answering yes to most of these things, time to take a spiritual inventory. And if you realize, and people do this all the time, I've been in churches everywhere. People have been coming to church and they realize, man, I've been coming to church, but I don't really have a faith. I haven't really taken that step. So if you're watching at home this morning, or you're here this morning, and you realize I haven't taken that leap. Maybe I've been coming to church my whole life and I haven't taken that leap. Or maybe I'm new to this thing. It's a simple thing to take that leap. It's simply asking forgiveness of the Lord, turning to Him and repenting, which means turning around and giving your life to Him. It's a simple prayer. We'll pray that this morning. Uh, But if you want to pray that uh, with the prayer team in the back, they're willing to pray that with you. You can come to me after the service and pray that, and we will pray that this morning right now. So let's all close our eyes and pray. I'll pray two prayers with y'all. So if you find yourself this morning and you uh, realize that you've just drifted, uh, which is easy to do, let's pray a prayer of coming back. And then I'll pray a prayer if you realize you're not a believer and you want to give your lives to Christ. So and you can pray with me uh, silently um, or out loud at home or however you want to do. But uh, the first one will be for us. So, Lord Jesus, you just repeat after me. I realize that I have fallen away. I am sorry for that. Now I want to return to you. I love you. I want you to be Lord of my life. I repent of whatever it is and you can name that that has caused me to fall away. I ask you to forgive me give my life to you. Lord, I want to live for you. And I recommit my life to you from this point forward. In Jesus' name. Amen. And if you've realized you haven't or you're not a believer and this morning you do want to come to him, and pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I have not been following you, but I want to follow you. So, Father, I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Lord, I want to live for you. I want to be a new creation. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. To change me and to make me a new creation. I give you my life. I give you everything. I surrender everything to you. Help me to live for you from this point forward. Amen. And do me a favor, if you.